If I haven't met you yet, uh, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Um, if it's your first time or you're relatively new, we glad you made it to uh, church today in this kind of this fake storm. Anyone else a little disappointed? Like, like it's been like a few years, right, since we've had like a good like Boston, New England snow, and I was like, oh, this is it. But no, slush, not even like a few inches, just a coating. I'm probably going to eat my words later. I think the, the heaviest part's supposed to be later this afternoon, right? Yeah. I'm going to slip and fall and break my other arm, you know. Uh, um, I'm sure you see my arm. Sometimes the Lord is very kind and he brings a sermon illustration to mind. Or he like brings something to mind that happened to my life a long time ago. Other times he wants me to live it out in a way that I really don't want to. So Jesus' question in John 5, do you want to be healed? Hits a little different. Um, I fell down some stairs. It's, it's not even a cool story. Everyone wants the cool story. Like, you know, the, the, the average kind of man's response is, is there was a bear or I was protecting someone. And no, there is an empty stroller bouncing down the stairs and I tried to catch it and I missed a step. I don't, I don't know what happened, but a few fractures, a displaced elbow and uh, welcome to 2024. Uh, anyways, uh, last week I preached about happiness in the new year, and I guess God's kind of like, are you sure about that? Like I, My wife said not to linger too long on my arm, so we're going to move on. Uh, three quick things before we jump into the sermon. Uh, first, now is uh, one of the best times to join a community group. There are two really good... Uh, you're always welcome to join a community group. Please do so. But there's two really, really good times. One is in the fall when we have all our new people. Community groups are kind of relaunching in a certain way. Um, one thing you will find, though, is that there are a lot of other people also trying to join a community group since we have a lot of newer people come to the church in the fall. Um, but the winter is actually the perfect time because community groups are restarting after a few weeks break. Um, and that's a great time to jump in. So would really encourage you to mark on your connection card or you can come talk to me. I'll be in the, by the welcome table in the back. It's a great time to jump in. Um, and then next week, we'll actually have a, a big table with a bunch of community group info, a list of the groups, where they meet. We'll have some people that you can talk to um, and figure out kind of what's going to work for you. would really encourage you to do that. Uh, second update, uh, a small update on our year-end giving goal. If you've been coming for the past few weeks, you know as a church, we set a goal for the month of December to raise $175,000. And uh, we normally give 10% of what we raise every month to um, stuff outside of the church, missions, ministries, individuals that kind of need assistance, missionaries, and kind of stuff like that. And then in the month of December, we said we're going to give an additional 10%. Um, and I'm happy to say that we uh, uh, blew that goal out of the water. Uh, so we're still kind of counting the final tally, and it should be somewhere around 190, 195. And so that's worth celebrating. Uh, that is, yeah. Um, a lot of that money is going to go to some really good causes, um, and I'm just thankful for you all and how you uh, were faithful to um, not just this church, right, but to the Lord and how he calls us to give. Uh, and then third small update, um, today we are actually going to end our service with a time of focused prayer. So um, there's kind of two prayer things that we do in service. One is extended prayer and one is focused prayer. Extended prayer is a longer service um, kind of tacked on at the end. Focused prayer is we still have the same amount of kind of service lengths. We cut a song. We're supposed to have a shorter sermon, uh, and we just spend some time um, praying together as a congregation, so we're going to end the service by doing that. Pastor Bland's going to come up. I uh, would encourage you, as you think about the passage that we just heard, as, we, as you kind of hear um, the sermon, just think about, uh, we're going to talk a lot about healing, we're going to talk a lot about who Jesus is, um, and so maybe there's something that God wants you to pray specifically about in this time of prayer at the end of service. would encourage you to think about that. So, John 4, 43 through 518. 
Um, that's where we're at today. Uh, last week, again, we talked about happiness. Uh, the four weeks prior, we were in a series, an Advent series, um, looking at who Jesus was in light of Isaiah 9. Um, and before that, if you can remember that far back, uh, in the fall, we started the book of John. And so we got through chapters one through four in like September, October, and November. Um, and uh, we're diving back in today. So a, a very brief recap, if, if you uh, either were here and don't remember if you weren't here, um, John chapter one, we're kind of introduced to this very big theological idea, this very big theological concept that, that Jesus is God in the flesh, um, and the idea that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and it moves on to John chapter two, and we see Jesus do this, 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 this miracle, turning water into wine, not just like cheap uh, $2 wine, but good wine. Um, then chapter three, John chapter three, we see Jesus have this conversation with Nicodemus, and he introduces this idea that to enter the kingdom of God, to be um, a spiritual um, enlightened, to be a child of God, you have to be born again. Um, and then we enter John chapter four, uh, which is the last thing we heard from John, and we see this interaction of Jesus with the woman at the well, this woman that society kind of um, uh, cast out and didn't put any value on um, and didn't seem to care about. And we see Jesus doing the opposite of those things. We see Jesus valuing this woman, um, Jesus including this woman, Jesus loving this woman, and ultimately, um, this woman at the well, who society deems as not worthy, is the first person in the Gospel of John that Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah to. So that's where we leave off. Um, and all of these must be remembered and read and heard with John's ultimate goal in mind. Um, we've talked about this verse a couple different times, and we'll continue to talk about it through the book of John. But, but John actually has a purpose statement, and it's at the end of the book in John chapter 20. If you um, have like the ESV uh, Bible, it has a little subheading that says the purpose of this book, the entire purpose of what John writes. Is, and it says this in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so as we read our passage, as we think about the previous passages and, and moving forward, we have to keep this in mind, right? That these stories, they're given to us so that we may believe Jesus is who he says he is, right? And that by that, we would have life. We would have eternal life. We would have a relationship with God, right? And so if that's true, if that's actually true, and this is what is at stake with this belief, then what we believe about Jesus is not of minor importance. It's not of second tier importance. It is the most important thing. Right? If you believe the Bible to be true, then what this verse is saying is the only way to have life, the only way to have life the way that God intends it with him is through knowing who Jesus is and believing in that. It's the only way, and so it's crucial that we get this Jesus right. And thankfully, God doesn't leave it to our imagination. He doesn't leave us kind of second-guessing who is this man. Right? He gives us the scriptures to reveal his son. He gives us his written word to reveal who Jesus is. He gives us these stories, as John talks about, to point towards Jesus so that we can see him and know him and understand him. It's funny, like we read stories like these and we think we kind of have nothing in common with these people, right? It's 2,000 years ago. Like there's not a smartphone or a TV in sight, not a car, nothing. Yet, we're confronted with the exact same existential questions. And we are asked the same kind of ultimate fundamental question of who is this Jesus? 
Like, who is this man really? A.W. Tozer, who I actually quoted him last week, he says, um, there are a great many bogus Christs among us these days. There's the romantic Christ of the romance novelist. There is the sentimental Christ of the uh, half-converted cowboy. I don't know what he means by that. There is the philosophical Christ of the academic. There is the cozy Christ of the poet. And there is the muscular Christ of the all-American halfback. But there is only one true Christ. And God has said that he is his sons. In other words, Tozer is saying, and what all the scripture says, is that there is one true Christ. One real Jesus And it's knowing this Jesus, this real Jesus, that John, the author of our passage, is so concerned about. It's the whole reason he wrote this book. Because he knows it's a matter of life and death. So in our passage, honestly, the miracles kind of get the most attention, right? Our minds maybe go towards those first. They definitely get the most ink. But when you look at the words of Jesus, the way he interacts with these people, he's more concerned that they actually know the miracle worker than that they know the miracle. All right, the miracle gave the people what they wanted, but the miracle worker gives the people what they need. And we stand in that same reality today, whether we realize it or not. Like everyone in this room comes in here wanting, needing, desiring something. Like the two men in these stories, we aren't too far off from their situation in that we are lacking something and we want something from God. I don't say that in a negative way. But our passage actually shows us that in a unique way that the needs of these individuals, the desperation, the hopelessness, the desires of these two men are actually meant to point them not to a pragmatic solution or not even to what Jesus does for them, but actually to Jesus himself to who Jesus is. And so our main point for today is this. As we look at this story, as we consider our own lives, it's this. Jesus uses your needs to show you who he really is. Jesus uses your needs, your desires, your wants, the things you're lacking to reveal who he really is. For me, at least, rarely do I think about my needs as a way in which God reveals himself. Right? But scripture wants us to think about the need as something that will teach us, something that will show us, something that will reveal more about God and who he is. So we're gonna look at a few things in light of this. We'll hit on three things. These aren't three points, but three kind of things we see in the story. Two men, two signs, one savior. We'll look at the two men, the situations they find themselves in and see they're not too different from our own. We'll look at the, 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 how Jesus answers these needs, the, the signs, the miracles he kind of does. And then the most important thing, we'll look at um, who this Jesus really is, who it is that is behind these signs and these miracles. So first, these two men and their circumstances. The high King official in John 4, we'll start with him first. Um, he finds himself in kind of a desperate situation. Right? We aren't told exactly who this man is. It's likely that he worked with the king at the time. Um, not too far off from someone who might be like an advisor to the president, president in our day and age. Um, and his son is ill with a fever, right? The passage itself says that his son was at the point of death, so we know that. But also remember back then, fevers aren't like today where you can just kind of pop a Tylenol and sleep it off, right? These, these things are serious. They can lead to death quite easily. And so it almost seems like a last-ditch effort that this official makes his way to Jesus. And Jesus, if you read it closely, he kind of has a reputation at this point. I look at the way John words this in verse 47. It says, when this man heard that Jesus had come, 
from Judea to Galilee. He went to him. In other words, when this man heard that Jesus, this man that who turned water into wine, this man who teaches uh, profound, amazing things, has come. He went to him. And it's funny, as I was thinking about this, this guy, this official, he's sort of atypical to the person that we see Jesus having compassion on, isn't he? Right, like, like we usually consider uh, the people that Jesus cares for and um, uh, has compassion on and is with as those who kind of are deemed as outcasts by society. Right, as those who are kind of lacking. We see Jesus as moving towards those people, the forgotten people of society. But sometimes we forget that the inverse is true as well. Right, that people that society might revere and respect or maybe uh, fear in a certain way. People that are popular, famous, rich, influential. Right, Jesus cares about these people just as much. Why? Yes, because God's love kind of levels the playing field, of course. Yes, because Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost and wealth and influence and money has no bearing on that. But also because they have the same ultimate need. Right, Jesus wants to show the important people of society that think they have it all, that they actually have nothing without him. And Jesus wants to show the outcasts of society that think they have nothing, that they actually have everything with him. And so for this man, he thought he was approaching Jesus just to get a cure for his son's physical illness. But in his mind, this was the need of the hour. This was his most desperate need. Like, and it comes full circle. This man's story kind of comes full circle, and it seems he actually understands who Jesus is at the end. But in this moment, he understands Jesus is someone. He's someone. He might not know who he's someone who can do some incredible things. It almost seems like this man could maybe do almost anything for me, and the thing that he goes to him with is his son's illness. Right? He thinks this is the need of the hour. And Jesus' response is pretty direct. Right? He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And I think that's because Jesus knows there's an even greater need. Look at how his response centers on the belief, right? Not necessarily on signs, not necessarily on wonders, not necessarily on miracles. He's concerned with belief, right? That's the greatest need. The official simply thinks he can come to Jesus and get something out of him, right? He doesn't know that there's something greater, right? He's essentially approaching Jesus because he thinks he can get what he needs out of him, almost like a genie, right? And if we're honest, how many of us, our pursuit of Jesus is often driven by that same thing, right? What we think we will get out of him, what we think we will get out of this relationship with God, it becomes almost somewhat transactional. And it's attempt to separate the blessings of God from God. Now, does this mean you can't ask God for things or ask God for help or ask God for guidance? No, of course not. That's all over scripture. Time and time again, God wants us to come to him for our every need. But if that's the only thing you talk to him about, a simple way to kind of see where you land with this kind of thing is, is take an inventory of your prayer life. But as I was thinking about this, I was actually really convicted by this, by the way. What do your prayers look like? What are you spending the most time praying about? Are you spending any time praying for anything other than what you need or what you want from God? Are you treating a prayer like a conversation and like worship and like communion with God who is worthy of your praise and adoration? Or are you treating God like a waiter at a restaurant 
I love one of this, one of this, one of this. Thanks. I'll take the bill. And so for us, we need to rethink how we view our needs, our suffering, the, the things that we're lacking, and the way we approach God with them. Right? They're not merely problems to be fixed. Right? God wants to use them, and Jesus sees them as an invitation. Right? An invitation into in- intimacy, and as a means to know him more deeply, as an invitation for him to show himself more clearly. Not just in your life for you, but for the people around you as well. Right, this man, the official, didn't realize at first that something deeper, something sovereign, something more powerful was happening through his need, through his desperation. He didn't realize that Jesus was using his need, his desperate moment, the thing that he lacked, the thing that he wanted to reveal who God really is. And he does the same for us today. Jesus uses your needs to reveal who he really is. The second man in our passage finds himself in a somewhat similar situation. Still some differences. All right, so the official, uh, the, the, the important man came to Jesus out of a place of desperation. But with the second man, Jesus came to him in his place of hopelessness. All right, now don't miss that small part of the story. All right, that speaks to who Jesus is. Look at this with me. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five colonnades. In, th- in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who has been there has been an invalid for 38 years, and Jesus saw him lying there. Jesus, as he went out of the way for the woman at the well in John 4, goes out of the way for this man too. Jesus, he gets to this great city of Jerusalem. Where does he go? Jesus, he gets to Boston, and where does he go? Doesn't go to the public garden. Doesn't go to Newbury Street or the north end of the seaport. He goes straight to Mass and Cass. Finds a man who's been there and broken for 38 years. And he asks, do you want to be healed? First glance, really weird, right? Like, are you out of touch, Jesus? Like, do you know where you are? Like, well, that's an insensitive question. So it seems, Jesus, what are you doing? The way the man answers, you can see that he wants to be healed. Right? He thinks that by being at this pool, uh, that'll fix the problem. He's, in his response to Jesus, he says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, in your Bible, I want you to look at verse 4 with me. That's a joke. There's no verse, and then one person gets it. There's no verse four. Uh, Don't be alarmed. It's not some divine error uh, or some misstep, but long story short, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, there was a verse four in your Bible. Or depending on what version you have, you might have a verse four. Um, But hundreds of years ago, there was a verse four, and it read this. It said, for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed, whoever stepped in Sorry, first, after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. And now the reason that verse is no longer in your Bible is because at one point in time, I don't remember how long ago off the top of my head, um, but we found a bunch of really old manuscripts, a bunch of really, really, really old copies of this chapter of John, older than any we had discovered before. And we saw that the oldest manuscripts and multiples of them did not have this verse in there. And so 
this long process called textual criticism is kind of how we determine what was actually in the original kind of uh, writings of the Bible. Um, and it was determined that this verse actually was not in the original. And so um, this shouldn't shake your confidence in the Bible or your reliability of scripture. It actually, if anything, should increase it, right? Because we found, okay, oh, actually that verse probably wasn't in the original writings. And so it was taken out. Uh, it was likely later added by scribes. And my very personal opinion is that they weren't trying to be malicious or weren't trying to twist things in scripture. I actually just think they were trying to add some clarity as to what actually was happening in that point in time. So anyways, tradition says that an angel of the Lord would come and stir the water in this pool and whoever stepped in the water first would be healed. And that is why all the invalids, all the lame, the paralyzed, the blind were hanging out by this pool. Right? They thought this water had healing properties. And Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? And now I think, the text doesn't clearly say, so we can only make educated guesses. I think Jesus asked him if he wants to be healed because Jesus knows he's looking in the wrong places. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, you, I know you want to be healed, so why are you looking here? Like if only you knew who stood in front of you. In other words, it might be that this man is hopeless, not because there's no solution or not because there's no answer, but because he's looking for hope in the wrong place. He's trusting in the wrong thing. And side note, a really cool theme in the Gospel of John is this idea of water and how um, you go back to the water and wine, you go back to the woman at the well who was thirsty and getting a drink, um, you go to this man who's trying to get healing from the water, the things that they're looking for in, in, in the water are actually the things that Jesus, the living water, gave. But this man, he's looking in the wrong places. And some of us feel that too, right? We feel hopeless. But let me say, could, could it be because, not because there's actually no hope, but maybe because you're looking in the wrong place? And more accurately, maybe because you're not looking to the right person. But the good news is with this man, and the other man, Jesus does heal them, right, in amazing fashion. So that's the two men. Now there's two signs. We won't spend as long on this one. And he does these things, and it's the kind of sign, the kind of miracle that we haven't seen in the Gospel of John yet. In chapter four, it says, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And then with the, the man at the pool, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And so though Jesus is more concerned that you know him, you know the miracle worker more than the miracle, Jesus does have, does care about your suffering. Your earthly suffering, the things you're struggling with, the obstacles in front of you, the weights that you have carried into this room, Jesus deeply cares about them. Right? He has compassion for hurting people in scripture and he has compassion for hurting people in this room. Right? He genuinely cares. You see in scripture, not just because he heals people that he knows will then follow him after that, but he heals people and cares for people and loves people that he knows will betray him later, that he knows will deny, them, deny him. He genuinely cares. But here's the thing, scriptures, our passage, show us that God is, not primarily is primarily concerned with you correctly knowing who he is, not just alleviating you of your suffering. 
God is primarily concerned with you correctly knowing who he is, not just alleviating you of your suffering. When you look at Jesus' response to these two men, you see that that is the most important thing to him. You see that that is the most important thing to God. Right? And so some of us, we're looking for an answer or for a solution or for the end of our suffering more than we're looking for God. We're looking for signs and miracles and the things that God can give us more than God himself. And for some, I might go as far as to say that may be the very reason that you aren't getting the very thing that you want. Right, we have to understand the functions of signs, of miracles, of the things that God does for you are ultimately not for you and the things you're facing, but for you and those around you to understand who God is. Right, the sign is meant to point to the sign giver. The miracle is meant to point to the miracle worker. The gift is meant to point to the giver. Right, that is what Jesus is concerned with. That is what Jesus wants these people and us to understand. We see the first man, the official, he gets it. Right, not at first, not immediately. Right, after Jesus said to him, your son will live, it says the man believed what? The word that Jesus spoke to him. It doesn't say he believed in kind of like a full, mature, following Jesus sense. But he comes around. Right, keep reading verses 51 through 54. It says this, as he was going down back to his home, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. It seems there is a shift in belief and trust from the mere word that Jesus spoke, from the thing that Jesus did, and the miracle that Jesus did to Jesus himself. Right, again, in other words, the, the faith, the trust, the belief, the hope of the man, of his son, and of his family shifted from the gift to the giver. Jesus used this man's needs to reveal who he was. He does the same thing for the man in the pool. But this man doesn't seem to get it in the same way. Right, Jesus heals this man and tells him to get up, take up his bed, and walk. The passage says that, that Jesus does this on the Sabbath, verse nine, which God commands us to rest on the Sabbath. But Jesus, he's not breaking the biblical command to rest. He's breaking a man-made definition, tradition of Sabbath, defined by, by, by the men, by the tradition of men and not scripture. The Jews, the Pharisees, uh, created not from scripture, but again, from their own thinking, their own logic, kind of 39 different categories for Sabbath rest. They weren't rooted in scripture. 39 different things that you could not do during the Sabbath. And taking up your bed fell into one of them. If you notice and look closely the interaction between the man that was healed and, and the Jews, they aren't even concerned or amazed or phased by the fact that this man who hasn't walked for 38 years is, is walking. No, what's their concern? Why are you breaking this rule that we made? They don't even seem to acknowledge or see this miracle, this thing that God has done. Right, they're blinded by uh, uh, restrictive religion. They were concerned with who told him that he could break the Sabbath. Who told you that you could break our rules? The man he initially doesn't know. Right, in, in the uh, first encounter with Jesus, it says that there was a crowd kind of growing and Jesus kind of drew away. So there wasn't an extensive conversation between the man and Jesus afterwards. But uh, later he crossed paths with him again at the temple. 
right? And some scholars are just kind of like, well, maybe he was there worshiping for the, the miracle that happened, but again, we can't know for sure. Um, and Jesus says this to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Which, a whole different topic, a whole different sermon, but scripture does affirm that sometimes sickness and suffering can be because of sin. But as we'll see later in the Gospel of John, not all sickness and suffering is because of sin. That is an important distinction. But now the man knows who healed him. So what does he do? We don't know his heart motives, but at first glance, it does look like he kind of goes and tattles, right? This is the man that you kind of wanted to get. I figured out who it was. And all of this leads us to verse 17, which verse 17 despite being one of the shortest verses and despite being at the end of our passage, is actually the climax of these events. It's actually the thing that these signs, these miracles, these healings, these conversations are leading to. And that is a revelation of who Jesus truly is. He says this. Jesus talking back to the Jews says this. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. First notice he says, my father. It wasn't uncommon for Jews at the time to call God Father, but to use that little kind of phrase, my, and that, that seeming uh, uh, level of intimacy that wasn't normal, that kind of uh, connection was not normal, that immediately would have stood out to them. They might not have picked up stones right away with that kind of statement, but they would have been like, who do you think you are? Right, what Jesus is saying is that just as God works during the Sabbath, to continue upholding the universe, continue sustaining your life, and continuing to care for you, so do I. In other words, Jesus is saying, uh, sort of saying, if these man-made rules don't apply to the Father during, a, during Sabbath, then they don't apply to me either. It's a stunning claim. One we haven't seen in the Gospel of John so far. Right? Jesus has said he is the Messiah. That's a big claim. But in the Jews' minds, that's not the same claim as, I'm God. D.A. Carson, who's a scholar, theologian, pastor, he says this about this passage. For this self-defense to be valid, and he kind of previously talks about how this is actually, uh, the, the, the verbiage is like a, that of a court case. They kind of come to Jesus and say, Jesus, make a defense for yourself. For this self-defense to be valid, the same factors that apply to God must apply to Jesus. Either he is above the law given to mortals, or... If he operates within the law, it is because the entire universe is his. Jesus insists that whatever factors justify God's continuous work from creation on also justify his. Read that last line again. Jesus insists that whatever factors justify God's continuous work from creation on also justify his. In other words, Jesus is declaring himself to be God. This is what the signs and the wonders and the things that Jesus does in meeting the needs of these men, this is what they all point to. And this is how they reveal who he really is. And John, like a good author, he sums it up nicely in verse 18. He says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So as we close, again, this is the thing that Jesus is concerned with when he heals these two men. 
right? This is Jesus's priority in meeting their needs, right? Not material provision, but true understanding as much as one could grasp of who he really is and belief in that. And so as you look at your life, you look at your needs, you look at the things going on, yes, no, Jesus cares about those things. But know that ultimately what he wants is for you to grasp even deeper, even more fully who he is and how he loves you so deeply. Yes, he has care and compassion for your needs. And he will meet those needs for you. Maybe not in the way you expect. Right, Matthew 6, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Don't worry, your heavenly father knows you need these things. But ultimately what he wants is for you to know him far more than he wants to give you things. God's deeper desire for you is to know him more fully, more than it is just to give you things. So Jesus uses the needs of these two men to reveal who he was, and Jesus uses your needs to reveal who he really is. Let's pray. God, we praise you that you use all things to point to yourself. God, that you use our needs, our desperation, our hopelessness. God, to point to you, not just to the answer that you give, not just to the miracles that you might work, though we praise you for those things and we ask for those things. God, we acknowledge there's something deeper, something more profound, something more important, and that is knowing you, and that is trusting you, that is believing in you, and that is seeing you for who you really are. Jesus, Lord, God, help us to know this, help us to know you. Help us to look beyond the things we need and see behind them there's a person we need and that is you. God, help us to praise you, help us to worship you. May you pray in us these things, amen.